0: The Water Values Podcast, Session 29. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for joining me. We've got a great guest for you today, but before we get to the interview, uh, for those of you that are not signed up for the newsletter, I just wanted to let you know that I'll be attending the National Association of Water Companies Water Summit in Fort Lauderdale on October 6th through 7th, and I'll be moderating a panel on the Safe Drinking Water Act. I'll also be attending the Global Water Intelligence American Water Summit in Houston, on October 23rd and 24th, and these are both great conferences that hopefully you're already registered for. And please let me know if you'll be there because I'd love to meet you and talk a little water with you. Well, on to today's interview. Chairman Elena Burtonshaw of the Public Utilities Commission of Nevada joins us today. She is also one of the co-vice chairs for NARUC's Committee on Water. She explains NARUC's and the Committee on Water's activities, and we talk at length about issues affecting water utilities, in particular small water utilities. She does a great job giving a regulator's position and perspective on water utilities, some unique programs for water utilities, and more. We had to do the interview via cell phone because of problems with her landline, but the interview turned out great nonetheless, and Chairman Bertenshaw was a fantastic guest. If you deal with utility regulators or are interested in learning about the utility regulatory process, this is a great episode for you. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. All right, well, Chairman Burton Shaw, thank you very much for coming on to the Water Values podcast. We greatly appreciate your time. We know you're very busy. Uh, But to start off with our interview, could you please tell us a little about your background?
1: You bet. Um, I was uh, in private practice for five years before I joined the commission, and I came on the commission as an assistant staff counsel, and then I became later staff counsel, but I was on the regulatory operations staff for 17 years before I was appointed by Governor Gibbons as commissioner, and about a year later, uh, Governor Sandoval appointed me chairman, and I've been on the commission since 2010, January of 2010.
0: Terrific, and, and you are also a co-vice chair of NARUC's Committee on Water. Um, so before we get into your, your activities on that committee, I was just curious, you know, what spurred your interest in water?
1: Um, well, water has been sort of the a, a uh, I've been involved in water for most of my life. I was raised on a farm. You can't grow up on a small farm without understanding the challenges of having enough water to uh, grow your crops. I used to joke that the most dangerous job that there was from uh, May to August in Idaho uh, where I grew up was the water master who had to sort of allocate the water between the very, very competing uses, so um, that tends to direct your attention about how important water is when your livelihood depends on it.
0: Sure, we've had a lot of guests on this program that have talked about NARUC but no one has really explained what NARUC is and I think being a a commissioner yourself and the chairman of the PUCN uh, could you tell us a little about who NARUC is um, so that our listeners can can learn a little more about that organization?
1: You bet. NARUC stands for the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. Uh, we have um, a executive group that is the president's first and second vice president, and um, they kind of represent uh, the NARUC interest before the sort of major federal agencies. The Colette Honorable, right now, is the president of Mayrook, and she, this, she probably says it best, and this is what she says it is Mayrook is the national association re- representing the state public service commissioners to regulate essential utility services in your state. Mayrook members are responsible for assuring reliable utility service at fair, just, and reasonable rates. Founded in 1889, the association is an invaluable resource for its members and the regulatory community, providing a venue to set and influence public policy. Fair best practices, and foster innovative solutions to improve regulation. NARUC essentially represents the interest of state public utility agencies before the three branches of the federal government and independent federal agencies. So a number of the across the United States send their members to NARUC, and it's sort of a, a great place to sort of exchange ideas, talk about policy, and vote on policy to have a National Association kind of represent those interests at a national level.
0: And it has a number of committees and and you 're on uh, as the co vice chair the committee on water what what does the Committee on water do um, and what 's you know kind of what 's its purpose
1: you got there's a number of standing committees um, water is one of them there 's about five of them that uh, includes critical infrastructure, electricity, or gas um, Water is um, I typically think one of the best committees because I'm honest, because I enjoy <laughs> water so much. Um, but um, NAWIC standing committees basically propose resolutions to set association policy uh, for congressional, federal, and industry matters. We hold educational sessions and panel discussions on relevant issues in order to serve NAWIC members. And we try to increase awareness and understanding about the issues surrounding uses and reuses of water and wastewater. Um, various policy resolutions, panel discussions, or participation in high level advance. Um, help us to work more closely with several agency and stakeholder groups, uh, including, of course, you should imagine, the Environmental Protection Agency, the National Association of Water Companies, and the Associ- Association of State Drinking Water Administrators. Water, unlike any other um, of the commodities that we regulate, is actually ingested. Um, you don't ingest electricity or gas or telecom, so it's, there's a heightened concern about making sure that this this Water supply is not only safe and not only reliable,
0: but also safe. Right. It, yeah, it's a massive responsibility. Uh, what can you give some example of? You mentioned resolutions that the committee on water has passed. What What are some of some examples of of things that the committee on water has, you know, resolved to do?
1: Well, we've we had a consistent, uh, since I think about 2005, sort of a best practices resolution identifying those things that for water companies would be best practices. The most recent one we did was discussions about small water companies. Um, unlike your electric companies or your gas companies, which have sort of a federal oversight site with FERC or, the, or Telecom with the FCC, really there's, there's no federal oversight. Um, in the same way, like FERC and FCC has for water, it's much more diverse, a, a diffuse group. Uh, uh, EPA might be the, the real single most federal agency that has the most you know, relationship with these small water companies. So almost every, whether you're in the east or the west, you have a tendency to have problems with small water companies because so they're undercapitalized, underfunded. They usually have no economies of scale. Nevada so is a prime example of having a lot of sm- uh, small water companies that you're trying to constantly help. So, that is in a little bit of position in some other states across the United States. Uh, for instance, I think Arizona has three or 400 small water companies. We have like 26. So, um, there's always this move to try to consolidate uh, small water companies together so that you can have better economies of scale or with larger companies so that they will be less undercapitalized. Because water, water is a very capital intensive uh, production. Uh, the Electricity is as well, but I think that a lot too often people don't understand how, how much capital is really necessary to properly do a water company. So the, the biggest problem we had with this was identifying some best practices for the small, some of the small water companies and what to do to identify on a regulatory basis how to help some of the small water companies uh, be more successful. And so I think one of the resolutions we, we passed about two years ago was a resolution for best practices on a regulatory basis for small
0: water companies. That's very interesting. And and what besides passing some of these these resolutions for on the best practices, uh, I'd like to pivot a little bit and, and ask you about how how you've seen um, strategies play out for you know consolidation amongst these smaller water utilities. Uh, are are there any strategies that that you've seen implemented that you think are successful in in helping out these small utilities?
1: Well, I think so much of it is geographically driven. Um, I know that there was, there is a, and I don't know a great deal about it. I probably should look into it a little bit more. um, But it's unlikely to work for Nevada. But in Connecticut, for instance, they have, in back east, they have a number of very small water companies. But they're not very geographically um, distant, distant from each other. So, if there are some, and a lot of times you end up with small water companies who are having some significant challenges and trying to stay, be able to comply with all the requirements of EPA associated with treatment of water. Uh, they have maybe a well go down or a pump go down, and they don't have the wherewithal to um, fix it. So you have these all these constant challenges with a company that's underfunded. And uh, my understanding is that there are there are a couple of different jurisdictions who have laws that will that will reward. Um, companies that take over these small water utilities with maybe a higher, higher ROE or some rate-making methodologies that would board them in taking over these small water companies. And I think there actually are some, there's actually one state, I think it might be Connecticut, but I'm not sure, so don't quote me on that, that actually says, you know, goes to, to the larger water company and says, you will take this company over or there's penalties if you don't. Oh, wow. So, um, there have, there have, I mean, there's been a number of different measures to try to, to encourage, we I mean, with the stick, having the larger companies take over the smaller companies to the extent that small companies are willing to be out of business.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and well, it's, it's interesting. You've drawn this distinction between, you know, back East and, and the West. And being on the, the water committee, it would seem that you, you are probably fairly aware of regional differences, um, in how water is regulated or treated or, or what have you. And could you talk a little about what you see as the regional differences in the U.S.?
1: You know, the biggest one is just water supply. Um, in the West, uh, where you know, particularly the Southwest, which sort of informs a lot of my opinions and concerns. Um, we, are, we have significant concerns about water supply and the extent to which we need to, you know, identify as conservation measures to ensure, you know, a continued water supply. That's not a concern back east. I mean, they've got plenty of water. I mean, they have kind of, they have more issues associated with too much water as opposed to too little water. So I think that that is a significant regional difference. When we at neighborhood when we had different panels that talks kind of about western issues. We're talking about the drought. When we're talking about um, the, the, uh, a lot of the issues associated with the east now has been. Um, what do we do with all these, all, you know, the costs associated with all these storm responses? Because you've had significant hurricanes, um, tornadoes, uh, and so, but it hasn't affected the water supply, just the ability to um, maintain service because of storm response. So the it's a, really more of a supply issue, I think, between the two between the two regions. But there's a lot of similarities that we face along with the east, which is just the challenges associated with small water utilities that are created by developers who inadvertently become a water company and had no intention of becoming a water company, and they have maybe two or 300 connections, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to now run a water company with no economies of scale. So, so there are some significant similarities that we all have to deal with, and we've come up with a number of rate-making that the dollar should try to assist in that those sorts of problems. But uh, the biggest issue between the, the east and the west is the water supply issues.
0: Okay. And in terms of... Uh Implementing those solutions, um, what kind of regulatory approvals are needed in order to to get those solutions implemented?
1: Well, across the United States, um, there have been in place for you know a uh, couple decades now, at least, uh, improvements in the conservation of water through low flow shower heads, low flow toilets, um, various. Requirements just locally associated with building uh, homes. And so we had declining water use in the water industry since I think the 70s, actually. So the declining water use has been a significant concern of the water industry. And in the, in the Southwest, uh, we have required very aggressive conservation measures, either in the water, uh, tiered rate designs, to encourage conservation. So that's contributed to the declining use. When you, don't, when you don't have – you're not filling enough water, you're not meeting your revenue requirements. And that contributes to unhealthy water utilities, and unhealthy water utilities contributes to people not being able to, you know, have enough pressure to take their showers, to flush their toilets, uh, do a variety of things that we would anticipate that people would want to do. So everything sort of, you know, not pardon the pun, flows downhill. It's important to maintain, you know, reliable water service, so we need to have a financially viable company to be able to do that. So we have, in, across the United States, there's been this kind of this move to try to identify ways to uh, change rates in a way that is that is less burdensome, particularly for small water companies, in these huge rate cases that are so costly. And we've done that in Nevada by having a staff-assisted process where our regulatory operations staff goes into the company, audits their books and records, and actually puts together um, the rate case for them. They file with us if they if they if they're happy with the results and it's a very short it's a very short process. But that is, that makes it so that the small company does not have to go out and hire a lawyer, engineer, and an accountant. Right. That would be put into rates again. Um, then we also have sort of the rate making mechanism that you, you were sort of pioneered by Pennsylvania, the Distribution System Improvement Charge, which encourages companies to invest between rate cases and still be able to get recovery between rate cases essentially. We have, uh, in our last legislative session, we got legislation passed by our legislature to allow us to have a variety of, sort of tools in our toolbox to do these different rate-making methodologies to assist water utilities in trying to obtain the revenue requirement in a, in a restrictive environment associated with water supply. So that if you have a significant and very aggressive conservation program, we create a disc mechanism or a decoupling mechanism to allow people to have a much better chance of each getting the revenue requirement. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Could you talk a little about how decoupling in the water industry works?
1: Well, um, in Nevada, we just finished our rulemaking to do that, and we don't haven't had anyone do that yet. So I'm going to have to. Let, I'm hoping that my experience in what we've done with Southwest Gas and the gas division can inform that discussion to some extent. Okay. Essentially, to me, what we've done with the gas, and I suspect it will be the same with the water, is we basically identify what the revenue requirement is, and then we identify how much margin for the customer is necessary to meet that revenue requirement. So that if um, more water is sold, that uh, they are less water sold, the annual revenue adjustment would either bump up or bump down depending on how much water was actually sold. So, if, for instance, if you revenue requirements spread across the number of billing determinants you have or the number of customers you have uh, would require $40 per customer to, be, to, to get the margin and equal the revenue requirement. And they happen to have a, a year where they sold more water than they expected to, then they got, say, $45 for, you know, margin per customer. Then the, the annual revenue adjustment would come back and say, okay, we're going to reduce your rate uh, because you were only supposed to collect $40 per customer. And so there would be a slight rate decrease in that next year. And at the next year, they, they sold, didn't sell, sell enough, then we'd have to bump up the rate. So there's this sort of this true-up every year that we do to ensure that the company has met, gets, meets their margin per customer.
0: Sure. And you say this is a fairly new um Addition to the the regulatory toolbox at the Public Utility Commission, Public Utilities Commission of Nevada.
1: Yes, this is we, we um, did an investigation and a rulemaking to determine the extent to which we could implement this without legislation. Came up with the conclusion that we really need legislation to do it, and went to the legislature last year. And the legislature uh, thought it was a good idea, agreed with us, and passed a law that gave us a variety a variety of uh, mechanisms to. Address sort of this need for uh, small water utilities because almost all of other, all the small, all the water utilities in uh, Nevada are small. Our largest ones have three and four thousand connections in uh, Perron and out in Alco. The rest of them are between go uh, from three and four thousand connections all the way down to twenty-five. So oh, wow. we have to try and find ways that to really aid people in not having huge GRC general rate case expenses. So that it's not passed on to customers, for instance, the rate assist, but also because almost ever all of our water utilities are dealing with water supply issues associated with drought, um, being an, in the you know in the Southwest, we had to find some way to make sure that they can stay healthy, even though we've got a conservation ethic. And the legislature gave us passed that law in 2013, and we finished the rulemaking, and uh, now we're just kind of waiting for somebody to come and use them.
0: <laughs> well. I- I think that's going to be a, a a very interesting test case. I've I personally have not seen a water decoupling case, and I'm just very interested to to see how that goes. Um, you also mentioned uh, D six or distribution system improvement charges. Can you uh, talk a little bit about how that program works? You, you indicated um, that that is kind of interim general rate case relief uh, that incents the utility to invest uh, in that in that interim period. Can you can you talk a little more about yeah. the D six?
1: It has been um, pioneered by Pennsylvania, who has has typically been extremely proactive in this area. And basically, we haven't had a case using it yet. Uh, We now have the authority to do it. But from what I understand from talking with the folks in Pennsylvania, it basically uh, provides incentives for companies to continue capital improvement plans through the rate effective period, but still get – without having – um, you know, the ban associated with single-issue rate making and not being able to having this inner period as you um, trying to figure out how to time your capital improvements so that you can put them into rates so you don't have this regulatory lag, this the mechanism essentially takes care of that problem to a to great deal, to large extent, by saying, okay, we are going to, um, and I haven't sat down and figured out the calculations, but you come to us with your with the the capital improvement that you've provided, and we're going to place that into uh, we're going to create a rate for that so that you'll get recovery of that capital project or that those capital expenses now, and then when we have your next rate case, we'll put it into rate base, but but it allows them to ensure that they're getting some some level of return on their investment and other investment during during the rate effective period. so there's no rate it really minimizes the regulatory lag for recovery.
0: The other mechanism or tool that you mentioned was the small utility rate case program. Uh, One of the things that I've seen, and I'm just curious if you've explored this at all, is a mechanism to allow small water utilities to essentially get an increase every year without actually coming in and doing a rate case. And that rate relief is conditioned on the utility complying with certain requirements. Uh, Some of those requirements would be things like getting their board members trained, getting their operators attending over and above, a certain number of training sessions, reducing non-revenue water, uh, things like that. And they have certain metrics they have to hit. And if they hit those metrics, then they're allowed to increase their rates uh, on an indexed basis. That is, you know, the commission issues an index every year for a certain number of years um, before getting another formal rate case, um, having to go in for that other formal rate case. Have you seen any uh, programs like that?
1: We actually have implemented something that has been in place for about the last five to that where um, up to for four years, a small water utility can come in and they can increase their rates by the consumer price index. So we're sort of kind of keep keeping up with that. So it's a, it's a small increase, but they come in every year, they ask for the increase associated with the CPI as cash. that is calculated for that year. And it goes into effect within like I think forty five days from the date that they file it. But at the end of the fourth year they have to come in for a rate case so we can take a kind of a true up look. And we are actually haven't we put in any requirements that they 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 do anything specifically until to get that CPI adjustment, um, other than just providing notifications to the commission that that's what they're requesting.
0: Okay. Well well that's that's interesting. It's good to know that these new Programs to help these small utilities are out there, and and hopefully they're taking advantage of them. Um, we've talked a lot about rates. Uh, could you? I, I'm interested in your thoughts as the chairman of the Public Utilities Commission of Nevada on kind of full cost water and and where you see that and where where we are in terms of how utilities are collecting their because are they are they charging full cost for water?
1: You know. I don't. I think water is probably the most undervalued commodity that we regulate. Uh, people, the I rave about, you know, rage and rave constantly about <laughs> the lack of a social, of a real social ethic associated with water. People expect it to be there, under the hierarchy of needs, is number two, under under air. Um, but they don't really understand that if we do we don't have an unlimited supply, but they expect it to always be there, without regard to um, challenges to get it there. Are cost They get it, there. They expect it to be They expect it to be very low in cost, and I think that the, you know the continuing EPA requirements associated with making it a safer drinking water, the Safe Drinking Water Act, for instance, the arsenic standards have significantly increased rates in Nevada. Um, all of those things I think have made people little slightly more aware that you know water is not free. I will never forget a consumer session when I was on staff where a gentleman approached me, wasn't very happy about the rate increase, and said, water should be free. It falls from the sky. And I said, (laughs) well, you can stick your own straw in the ground and suck it out yourself. I'll agree with you. But people don't understand the infrastructure necessary to create that. When they turn on the tap, they've got water coming out, and it's a safe drinking water when it's coming out. So I think the the full cost of water is is oftentimes – not properly reflected in rates. I think that the fixed variable charge needs to be really very hard, because I think that for you've such a declining water use and such at conservation, I think we really need to create associated with water that we really need to have more and more placing to the fixed charge, so that the companies, especially the small water companies who just can't take risks, that some of the large companies can, they need to have more of a guarantee that they're gonna have a better chance of creating getting more of the revenue requirement. Because if they don't, they're not going to be able to provide that reliable and safe service people absolutely require.
0: You've mentioned the kind of declining use adjustment on several occasions. What type of evidence have you seen to support that? I've I've been in a case where I didn't feel the declining use adjustment was properly supported, and and the commission ended up not approving it. Um, in the second go around, uh, the utility prepared a more robust model that supported the declining use adjustment. And it did a lot more testing on its statistical model. Um, I don't, I don't know that there's a result in that yet. But I, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on how those types of declining use adjustments need to be supported. And and and, and I don't want to make you talk about a, a pending case, so please don't. If...
1: Oh no, we don't. We don't actually have any pending cases on this. Okay. And this is actually one of the one of the measures that the legislature gave us to, like the tool the toolkit to deal with. Some of the issues that we have. We've not seen a case involving this yet. Okay. So it's kind of hard for me to comment too much on it because I, I don't really have enough um, experience with it. I have always, though, we had a small water utility some years ago that we put in a, basically a of a aggressive tiered rate design. And the declining water use associated with that rate design. Pretty significant. I mean, the, the water utility didn't come close to getting its revenue requirement, and so they had to file another rate case within you know, a much shorter period of time that they had presumed that it would need to. Um, we know that when we put in the grass and conservation rates, usage declines because people are really watching their bill and they're trying not to, they're trying to conserve water because basically conserving water reduces how much they're going to have to pay the utility. And I, I to me, the declining usage adjustment has always been sort of a it's kind of like trying to predict where gas prices are going to go for the next year. <laughs> you know, uh, so I think yeah. it is really, I mean, you've got, to, you've got to have a lot of good data points. You've got to have a lot of good information. Uh, but at the end of the day, to me, some of it's going to be intuitive. It's probably why I have a tendency to really support decoupling more because now I'm working with real numbers. Okay. Um, and I can see and I can i can identify what you need, you need to have to be healthy. And to the extent that you're not getting that, I can make that up. It's sort of an after the fact adjustment, but it is something I can wrap my arms around better than just trying to estimate what might happen mm-hmm. based on, you know, people's habits, which can change and be very variable. So I think that anything you put in front of me associated with that type of um, request is it's going to have to be fairly data driven based on, you know, experience and um, it's, it's, it's a question that I have not been able to answer very successfully
0: myself. Well, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. That's really uh, great information. Another thing, and I'll draw an analogy with a telephone service here. I'm familiar with lifeline rates where low income folks and low income customers can essentially get a subsidized rate. I have not been in a jurisdiction where that lifeline rate exists for water, I'm curious, is that something that's on either NARUC's radar or the PUCN's radar?
1: Uh, it, is, it has not been on our radar. Um, the small water companies that we regulate are typically at, have a tendency to be out in the hinterlands of Nevada. I don't know if you've ever been in Nevada, but um, it is a very kind of, uh, once you get outside of Las Vegas and Reno, there I are mean, miles and miles and miles of uh, desert before you find a small town, and a lot, many of those small towns, um, everybody would be on the lifeline rate. Mm-hmm. So they are typically very small, and the the lifeline rate. I'm not sure how that would work because it would be. Uh, we have one water utility where I can't imagine that anybody that that not a single person on that system wouldn't wouldn't qualify for lifeline rate. Okay. So I'm not sure how the company would ever possibly collect its revenue requirements to maintain the health and the ability to continue to render service so what we try to do is we try to to um, encourage companies to be as responsible as possible with their expenses and trying to reduce expenses as much as possible as possible to the extent necessary to still provide reliable service but at the end of the day i'm not sure given the paradigm in nevada that lifeline rates particularly for the small water companies that we have would, would be very very um, well-received by the community, given the fact that almost everybody, just, it's, you, it's one of those very difficult questions that we have. And what we typically do for low-income people, uh, for the larger utilities to regulate, usually doesn't translate well to small water utilities.
0: Well, that's an interesting perspective on lifeline type rates uh, and their workability. Um, I've got one last substantive question. From your seat as the chairman of the Public Utilities Commission of Nevada, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on what the water utilities are doing well in their cases before you, and what you'd like to see done differently.
1: So, well, you know the our small guys. Like I said, they're they're typically when we see them, it's because staff put together the right case for them, and they don't go to hearing. Um, they the company usually uh, uses staff numbers, puts them in front of us, and the staff is would be the only typically the other party to the case since their filing. So it's pretty performant performance. But we do have two water utilities, possibly three now, who fall into the category under under state law, they have to file a rate case every three years. And I think what we've uh, what we've seen recently that they've done really well is they've and we've also got created a resource planning process for them. So if they're going to do some large capital improvements they come to us first, they get approval of the capital improvements, so that when it shows up in a rate case, nobody can say, that was imprudent for you to build, because we've already decided the prudency of that construction. Okay. It might quibble about what it cost to put it up, and whether or not they gold-plated it, but um, the, 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 you can't money morning quarterback the fact they actually did the project, because we already approved it. I think that's reduced significant, uh, a significant risk associated with capital improvement projects that we've that, that's one kind of issue that's been taken out of most of the rate cases for the water companies, and I think that uh, the we've also kind of streamlined this for them as well. We do a calculation to identify what the so they don't have to bring in the cost of capital witness and expend this, the funds associated with hiring an expert to do that. We have a regulation where we do the calculation for cap, cost of capital. And if everybody's okay with that calculation based on the methodology that was proven in the regulation, they don't need to bring in a cost of capital witness. And we, Since we've approved that regulation and staff has done the calculation, the company has, has, has used that as opposed to bringing in a cost of capital witness. And cost of capital to me had always been the, the biggest thing that the utility did um, that was always the, the most aggressive portion of their case. It typically is, and um, there was always, to me, this sort of disconnect between the real world and um, how, how world, the world is in Nevada, for instance. So that has, I think we have done, even in the larger cases, we have done certain things with our statutes that have allowed us to take away some of the risk that water utilities were having in those areas, streamline the process, and kind of bring sort of like a, a middle ground, uh, which is typically where we always have in rate cases anyway without having to go through the pain of, he- of hearing testimony on widely differing views in these areas. Hmm. So I think, I think our statutes have allowed us to sort of take away some of the problem areas of our rate cases, frankly.
0: Yeah, if you can get rid of the cost of capital element of and the big fight over that, because that's always a huge fight in every rate case. i got to imagine those are go much smoother than uh, they used to.
1: Well, it's allowed us to they, allowed us to for the companies to sit down with the parties and be, be more uh, able to settle cases. Mm-hmm. Um, once they once they sort of lose the cost associated with hiring an expert, and the calculation is a methodology that they were they were part of creating, and the number is reasonable, and it usually and we usually have a range, and the commission usually finds falls in the middle of the range anyway, and that's where the calculation usually ends up. Uh, it's been a, it has really streamlined the argument in cases. And so some of the criticisms I would have had about the way people present evidence has really gone away because of those
0: mechanisms. Yeah. And, and that's good for the rate payers because the utilities aren't incurring as much rate case expense. So, um,
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Well, Chairman Burtonshaw, you have been absolutely terrific today talking with us about uh, water issues from the regulatory standpoint. And I just wanted to thank you again for spending a lot of your, you know, uh, 30 minutes of your valuable time with us for, uh, for those folks who'd like to learn a little more about NARUC and the Public Utilities Commission of Nevada, uh, where can they go to find that out?
1: Well, NARUC has a great website. Uh, you just kind of Google NARUC and it'll pop right up. The um, And you can, they'll tell you about the latest meetings. They provide all the, uh, the PowerPoints and information that we're pulling from panels on from the last meeting on the website. So you can get a lot of substantive information there. As well as um, they have a research division on neighbourhood and York staff that are excellent uh, and Maybrook is very uh, very interactive with trying to help people so if you would go on the Maybrook website take a look at the, uh, the staff section uh, there's about any kind of area that you might be interested in, they've got an expert that can help you and for the PUCN uh, probably the best place to start is with our staff staff is an independent regulatory body from the commission and that's where sort of all the expertise, uh, the vast majority of the expertise on a commission lies, is with our staff. There, uh, they've got re- they've got accountants and lawyers and economists, and uh, water engineers, and significant expertise on the commission staff. So, they, and they because they participate in every single case filed with the commission, and are independent body, they're more they're more able to be provide opinion than policy side. We also have experts on the policy side that. Given our concerns associated with talking about pending rate cases or pending cases, staff is usually the person/people we send questions to. Uh, and Marie Cunio is our director of regulatory operations. And whatever questions you might have, if she can't answer it, she has someone on staff who can.
0: Great. Well, Chairman Burtonshaw, thank you again for your time. We've greatly appreciated our conversation, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. That was my interview with Chairman Elena Burtonshaw of the Public Utilities Commission of Nevada. She was fantastic, and I, and hopefully you, really appreciated her candor and willingness to discuss the issues that are cropping up before state utility commissions concerning water utilities. Here were my takeaways from the interview. The one that blew me away was Nevada's mechanism for removing cost of capital as a contested issue in rate cases. You know, cost of capital is always such a huge issue in investor-owned utility rate cases, and to remove it really paves the way for settlement, which is good for everyone. The utilit- utilities minimize regulatory lag, the ratepayers avoid a large chunk of rate case expense being built into rates, and I think, and this is just you know my conjecture, I think it probably creates a better atmosphere in a rate case, and that in and of itself helps facilitate settlements. Another important takeaway was the issue of water conservation and its impact on prices. I've got a guest coming on in the future to discuss this very issue. Newsletter subscribers know this, but Chairman Burtonshaw provided a very interesting discussion concerning decoupling water rates and declining usage adjustments. She expressed her preference for decoupling, and we could spend an entire episode on decoupling alone, so I hope we didn't give it an overly short shrift. Uh, regardless, I'm very interested to see how the new water decoupling program works in Nevada. My final takeaway concerns a topic we've discussed in previous sessions, and that's the issue of small, undercapitalized water utilities. Chairman Burton Shaw identified a range of regulatory responses to those small water utilities. I just think consolidation is inevitable, and hopefully lawmakers and regulators develop you know, better methods of ensuring that proposed water utilities have the requisite technical, financial, and managerial ability to start up in the first place, which I think can go a long way toward alleviating the problems of these small, undercapitalized utilities. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 29. And please don't be bashful in letting me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by emailing me at david at You can also tweet at me at DTM1993. And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. Well, as I said at the top of the show, for those of you that are going to the National Association of Water Companies Water Summit in Fort Lauderdale in early October, drop me a line, shoot me an email, let me know, because I'd love to meet up with you and talk a little water. And likewise, for those of you that are going to be at the Global Water Intelligence American Water Summit towards the end of October, and that's in Houston, please let me know. Again, would love to meet up, talk a little water with you, and just get to meet some of the great folks that are in the water industry. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.